If you have a Bible, we're going to be on page 287 in the black hardback ones around you. If you have a Bible of your own, I don't know the page number, but open it up to 1 Kings chapter 8, which Lee just read a portion of. 1 Kings chapter 8, page 287 in the black hardback ones around you. Um, so, back several years ago, we built uh, this building as a church. Um, for those of you, maybe this is your first time, or you've been wor- you, you began worshiping with us in the last little bit. We we built this building in 2014, and we moved into it on March the second, 2014. That was our first Sunday in this building. We had spent six years setting up and tearing down right down here in Sunset Middle School, and we moved in here on March second. That was our first worship service. Just so I can kind of get an idea, how many of you were here on March second of 2014? So about half, about half of us. Um, so when we, when we moved in here, just to give you a little background on that, that first Sunday we, we dedicated the building, right? We dedicated the building to God, and so we, we didn't talk so much about us, who we are. We talked about God and who He is and His grace and His goodness and His kindness and His faithfulness and how He's unchanging and how He sent Jesus to rescue all who would believe and that we are here in part to to worship and enjoy him, but also to lead others to do the same. And so we talked about that. We dedicated the building to the Lord, and it was a sweet day. It was a, it was a great day. As we come to chapter 8 of 1 Kings, we have a similar situation going on. Solomon has completed the building of the temple, and now it's time to dedicate it. Now, just to frame a couple of things, a church building is astronomically different than the temple uh, of Solomon. All right, A church building is where... Followers of God gather together all right, in, in worship of God. And there's, there's millions of them across the world. So some of us, some of God's people are gathered here at Providence. Other ones are up the road at Sunset Hills. Other ones are over at South Point. They're all across the world, all across our country. All right? So lots of little local microcosms of God's great big global church. Okay, Now, the temple, on the other hand... Is what was like the place that represented God's presence with his people. Like in all the world, there's only one, all right? It was the place that represented God's presence with his people. And so a church building and a temple are, are astronomically different. Now today we have no temple, right? Because we don't need a temple anymore. Jesus has come. The, whole, the temple pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus has come. We don't need uh, more sacrifices. We don't need a mediator between us and God. Jesus is that. We have direct access to the Father. That's what the curtain being ripped when Jesus rose again. And when he was crucified and rose again, that's what that was all about. We have 365, 24-7 access to God through Christ. And so as Chad pointed out last week, The temple was all about pointing to Jesus. But in Solomon's day, Jesus was still a thousand years away. And so they have this beautiful structure that symbolizes him. And so it's a big deal. It was the place where God's represented as being with his people. And so it was a big deal. So now it's finished. And Solomon comes to dedicate it to the Lord. But the focus of the dedication isn't so much like on the temple itself, but rightly on the God of the temple. 
on who he is, on his characteristics, his nature, his character, his care, his attributes. And so even as Solomon prays for God's blessing and God's plans and God's will to be done and, you know, in all the earth, even as he does that, he serves us as readers with kind of a tutorial on exactly who God is, exactly who he is. His readers, his hearers, he served them as he prayed and talked about who God is and he serves us as well. Because as A.W. Tozer put it, what comes, and this is why this is so important, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to read that again and then he fleshes it out. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. The most determining fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And so in other words, our knowledge of God is the core shaping influence of our lives. And so let's make sure that we think rightly about this God. And so let's talk about this God and let's think about him and let's be served by Solomon as he lays out for us six major truths about God. Right, through the midst of a prayer of dedication, he calls out to us six major truths about the God of the universe. And so we're going to make our way through them this morning. And so just jumping right into the first one. God is a mysterious yet clear God. Right, so number one, if you want to take notes, I think some of you got a sermon guide. Some of you didn't. I don't know if you didn't print enough or what, but... If you want to take notes, number one, God is a mysterious yet clear God. And so go back to verse 9 that Lee read earlier in 1 Kings chapter 8. Verse 9, it says, There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Oreb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. This is the Ten Commandments, okay? And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. All right. And so again, number one, God is a mysterious yet clear God. And so you have this cloud filling the temple just as it did in the time of Exodus. That same cloud, you have it filling the temple as a representation of the glory of God. And so this this cloud descends on Solomon's temple just like it did with Exodus. And it's, again, a visible sign of God's presence. It reveals His glory. Okay? It reveals His glory. Yet, also, it conceals his glory. Because while Solomon and all those around him can see the cloud, they cannot see God in the full blaze of his presence. And so the cloud both reveals and conceals God's glory. It signifies that there is a certain hiddenness about God. 
There's much we cannot see and cannot know about God. He's mysterious. And yet he's also clear. And his clarity is revealed by what's in the ark that was brought into the Holy of Holies. And what's in the ark? The Ten Commandments. And what are the Ten Commandments? That's God's word. And so his clarity is given to us through his word. And so the tablets reveal that the people of God live under the word of God. And so God has made his will clear. He's made it obvious. And so putting all of this together, the cloud points to Yahweh's mystery. And the ark, the tablets point to his clarity. The cloud suggests that we cannot know him exhaustively. But his word testifies that we can know him sufficiently. And so understand, the Bible is not an encyclopedia of everything that there is to know. Even about God. But it is everything that God wants us to know and that we need to know in order to have life and salvation and live in godliness before him. And so it's kind of like this. I want you to draw, everybody get a pencil or a pen, or at least have your, someone sitting next to you. Draw a circle on a piece of paper, okay? Draw a circle on a piece of paper, and inside that circle, write the knowledge of God. You can write my knowledge of God, okay? On the peripheral of that circle, or the circumference of that circle, write... Questions about God. Alright? So, in the middle, my knowledge of God, circumference, my questions about God. Alright? Now, draw a bigger circle. Bigger circle. And inside, write, my knowledge about God. And around the circumference, write, my questions about God. You see what we're doing, what, what, what I'm illustrating here? Have you figured it out yet? As our knowledge of God grows and increases... So also, what we realize we don't know about God grows and increases. The more we know about God, the more we realize we don't know about God. The more we know about God, the more questions we have about God. And this is because Psalm 145, His greatness is unsearchable. We cannot plumb the depths. He is mysterious in many, many, many ways. And yet through his word, he's very clear as well. And so that's number one. Number one, God is a mysterious, yeah, yet clear through his word, God. That's number one. Number two, second thing Samuel shows us is that God is a promise-keeping God. God is a promise-keeping God. Look at verse 12 again. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people. Now, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart 
to build a house for my name. You did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house of the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You have spoke with your mouth And with your hand, you have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And so again, number two, God is a promise-keeping God. Did you see all that peppered through there? How he keeps his promises. That's what Solomon's just detailing out. that The promises that God had made to David about the temple, he's fulfilled. Because that's who he is. He is a promise-keeping God. In this room, all of us probably know someone who did not keep their promises. Sometimes it's in a small thing. Sometimes it's in a big thing. A business agreement, personal agreement, a marriage. And someone didn't keep their promise. If we can be honest and come clean for a minute, a lot of times that person is us. We don't keep our promises. But that's not true of God. God always keeps his promises. And so wherever you're at, whatever you're going through in this moment, when God says he will never leave you nor forsake you, he means that. And when he says that he will always be with you until the end of the age, he means that. When he says he will supply all your needs, maybe not all your wants, but all your needs according to his riches and glory, he means that. When he says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, He means that. And so Solomon's praising God here for the fact that he keeps his promises. But then notice verse 25 and verse 26. He says at the beginning of each of those. Now, therefore, now, therefore, right, like on the basis of what you have done now, keep on keeping your promises. And so it's this idea, and I want you to get this as well, that God's past faithfulness has now become the basis for his expectation of his continued faithfulness. Okay, God's fidelity in the past is the basis for expecting the same in the future. And so friends, just for a second, think about your own life. 
Think about everything that's brought you to this moment here on March the 31st of 2019. All that's going on in your life. The highs, the woes, the heartbreaks, the tragedies, the missteps, the confusion, the just everything, gut-wrenching grief, everything that has gone on in your life to bring you to this moment. And remember and think about the faithfulness that God has shown you during all that. That He's been with you, that He's guided you, that He's loved you, that He's brought you to, to salvation in Christ. If you are a believer, if you're not a believer, that you are here hearing the gospel and He wants to extend grace to you. So think about all those things. And then remember, God's going to continue like that. He's not just going to quit. He's not going to suddenly stop being faithful. He's not going to suddenly stop keeping his promises. He is unchanging always and forever. And so be encouraged. Draw that up like a warm blanket around your soul. God will keep his promises. He will be faithful Because he is a promise-keeping God. All right? Number three. God is also a transcendent, yet imminent or intimate even, God. God is a transcendent, yet intimate God. And what I mean by that is that God is, on the one hand, incomprehensible. He's uncontainable. You can't fence him in. Right? He's high, he's lifted up, he is the sovereign, holy God of the universe, transcendent above us. That's what verse 27 is all about. Look at verse 27. Solomon is praying, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And so these words drip with our happy failure to get a grasp of the massive majesty of God. But then notice verse 28. No sooner than does Solomon confess that we cannot contain God's immensity, than he confesses verse 28. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry And to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. And so this transcendent God as described in verse 27. Is the same God that hears our prayers. And so understand that God's transcendence does not destroy his intimacy. Though it should give us some goosebumps. I mean if there's one chronic shortfall of humanity that marks us throughout the ages. It is our consistent, constant ability to minimize and downplay the glory of God and maximize our own capabilities in our minds. But God is not just a slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of us. He exists Literally, without beginning or end. That'll make your brain hurt a little bit to think about that. 
He stands outside of a massive universe at least 12 trillion light years across. Having spoken it into existence with a word. Isaiah tells us that he calls out the eight octillion stars by name. I can't even remember my kids' names half the time. (laughs) Haley, I mean, Claire, I mean, Kira, I mean, Eden. Oh, Sarah, I was trying to talk to you, actually. Like, I can't remember my own family's name. Yet God, he's like, oh yeah, Alpha Centauri, Beetlejuice, Polaris. Yeah, Beetlejuice, 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 not that one. I just committed a fallacy we were talking about in preaching clinic. Don't reference a movie when you're preaching that you would not recommend other people to watch. (laughs) And I just did. Anyhow, he calls them out by name, right? He can do that. He knows all of them. He calls them out by name. And he's so in touch with every aspect of his universe that not a sparrow falls without him knowing about it. Not a hair from your head falls without him knowing about it. And so compare that to the capacities of your mind. My mind. Because being honest, I I am largely clueless about the things that I rely on day to day, like for work, that I have to work. Like when my car makes a noise, I take it to the shop and they do something. And then I I swear they come out and they start speaking in tongues telling me what's wrong. And then after a minute, they're like, and that'll be a grand. And I'm like, sounds good to me. I, I literally have no idea if they're telling me the truth. Right? Same thing with, with our cell phone. With our cell phone. I have no idea how that thing works. I do well to get the lint and dirt out so it'll take a charge. That's like the best I can do with a cell phone. I have no idea how that thing works. And so it is like for, for us then. It is not wise for us with our capabilities, our limitedness. To expect to comprehend everything about God. Right? Again, he is mysterious. But let alone for us to try to subject him to our bar of understanding. And God, you need to fit my understanding. You need to fit what I want. That's why we try to put on God and make God the God that we want. Instead of letting him be the God that cannot be contained in a temple. Cannot be contained in a theological system. Cannot be contained by cultural views. God is transcendent. And yet this God that we're talking about, so big, calling the stars out, eight octillion, almighty, infinite God, is the same God that invites you to talk to Him. And hears your cries, hears your prayers. And so that's a reason for both trembling and joy. God's majesty dwarfs our universe, yet His ears receive our prayers. He is a transcendent yet intimate God. Okay, that's number three. Number four, we'll hit this one pretty quick. Another thing Solomon's prayer teaches us is that God is a justice conscience God. God is a justice conscience God. Look at verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head. And vindicating the righteous 
by rewarding him according to his righteousness. What Solomon is acknowledging here is that sometimes things in our lives, there there are going to be times in our life where justice is not served. In our own lives. Where justice is not served. And when that happens, Solomon is saying that you can lay it at God's feet knowing that he will bring justice. And so for those of us who've been wronged, who've been like severely wronged, and there was never a real apology, not really anything done to try to make it right, which is probably all of us at some point, And now this person's just going on with their lives. There's no repercussions. There's no justice. What happens a lot of times because of that is that we can't, we just can't let it go. And so we hold on to anger and we play the story over and over and over and over in our minds. Rehearsing, oh, this should not have happened. This should not have happened. This was wrong. And now he's out there and he's going scot-free. And there's no repercussions. There's no justice. He is happy and I'm dealing with all of this. And we seize with anger, rehearsing it. God's word from Romans chapter 12, verse 19, comes at you this morning to set you free. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so laying down that burden of anger is what he's calling us to do. Laying down that practice of nursing your hurt with feelings of being wrong. Okay, laying all that down that he's calling us to do does not mean that there wasn't any wrong done to you. It doesn't mean that there won't be justice someday. It doesn't mean that you won't be vindicated. It doesn't mean that they just got away with it. No, it means when you lay down the burden of vengeance, God will pick it up. And since God is going to take up your cause and see to it that justice is done, you can lay it down. And you don't have to carry that anger and that bitterness, that resentment, that revenge. And you don't need to anyhow. Jesus says it will destroy you. Jesus warned an unforgiving heart will destroy you in the end. And so this isn't some, this idea of let God have it, isn't some subtle way trying to get revenge. This is a way of giving vengeance to the one to whom it belongs. God. And for you, it means maybe you can take a breath for the first time in a long, long time and live and love. All right? God is a justice conscience God. He's for you. And he's got your back always. All right, number five. God is a grace-extending God. God is a grace-extending God. And this one probably takes up the bulk of the entire prayer. From verses 33 to verse 53, it's centered on this idea of God extending grace. And not only extending, his willingness, his desire to extend grace. Like in this section, you have six major prayer requests that Solomon lays out. And in every single one of them, it speaks of need of forgiveness. This doesn't mean that everything in our lives is marked by a need of forgiveness. But it does mean almost everything in our lives is marked by a need of forgiveness. 
Because we are so sinful and we're blind to it. I'm blind to it. And so it's all marked with prayers for forgiveness and God's willingness to extend grace. But I think it's really striking when you think about like what is happening here and what he prays. This is a dedication of the temple. This is a major celebratory public speech. And yet he's saying, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us. Like we're sinful. We do it all the time. Forgive us. And in this way, we sin. Forgive us. And in this way, we sin. Forgive us. It's so different than the celebratory public speeches we have today. I got to just think about graduation speeches and commencement addresses, right? I've sat in for a few and I've watched even more. And most of them are just filled with utter foolishness, flattery, and ridiculousness. Almost every single one of them says, you guys are the greatest people to ever live. And the world, you are going to save the world. Like you. No one else could ever do it, but you can. And so it just lobs all this flattery on people. There's nothing that will stop you from achieving your dreams. Except disease. Some bad luck. And the fact that half of you are going to have a marriage that ends in divorce. But we don't talk about those things. We just lob all this meaningless platitudes that make us feel invincible. Someone's thinking, Joe's snarky. I just want us to be real, like Solomon is. Solomon's whole prayer is built on the understanding that we are desperate sinners who need God's help because we constantly mess it up. Like over and over, he details this out in this section. And then he comes, and this is what's so amazing, he comes to like a worst-case scenario when you get down to verse 46. And says, suppose even, this is the extending grace of God, suppose that even God casts you off forever because of your sin. And your people are carted off into a foreign country and languish in exile, which is prophetic in a way. It'll happen about 400 years later. Babylonians will come destroy the temple and take them off into exile. But even then, worst case scenario, God will forgive. Look at verse 48. All that's going on. Verse 48. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And so the whole point here is the reality that God's people, okay, I'm talking about Christians right now, while justified, while saved, we are still sinners. It's the whole Martin Luther, I give you the Latin all the time, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified yet sinners. And so, yes, we are still sinners, though saved, so set free from the penalty of sin, being set free from the power of sin. 
So we're saved, but we are still sinners. But God stands ever ready and willing to extend more grace to us. And to extend grace to anyone who will repent and believe. But the point is, repent. Repent. Like fighting it. Acknowledging it as sin. Agreeing with God. This is sin. And repenting. Trying to turn and fight. And you're going to fall. And you're going to scrape your knee. But you fight. Friends, it is never someone's sin that prevents them from the kingdom of heaven. Regardless of what that sin is. It's lack of repentance that prevents someone from the kingdom of heaven. That keeps them out of the kingdom of heaven. And so what Solomon is saying over and over and over in this passage... 33 to 53, is that God is a grace-extending God who desires to forgive and restore after sin. Because after all, that's what the temple was all about, right? The temple was all about like all these small-ish sacrifices that were carried out, all pointing to the need of an ultimate sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice to come, because sin is a big deal because it's against God who is holy and just. And so in love, he's going to punish sin. There's a penalty for sin. All right, it must be atoned for. And that's what all those little sacrifices point to. And then a thousand years after this temple, the ultimate sacrifice showed up. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. And what he did, he did what we couldn't do. And so the perfect sinless life that we have all failed to live, but that God demands of us, Jesus came and he lived it for us in our place as a substitute. And then the penalty for our sin that we absolutely deserve, Jesus came and he paid it for us as our substitute. And then rose again in victory over sin and death. And he did that for you and for me because he is a grace extending God who loves you and desires you to be part of his family. That's who he is. He is a grace extending God. And so friends, without Christ, God wants to extend his grace to you. And so repent and turn in faith to Christ. Trusting in his life, death, and resurrection to alone be what can make you right with God. And then Christians in here. And we still struggle with sin. But listen, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is just as much for today as it was the day you first repented and believed. The sins of God's people will not maroon them, will not maroon you to a hopeless cul-de-sac of guilt. Because even in sins, there is a future and a hope because God is a grace-extending God and He doesn't run out. Like Niagara Falls, there's always more coming over. Doesn't run out. All right, one last one. Number six, God 
is a missionary God. God is a missionary God. So we're talking about all these things that God is. All these things that Solomon lays out as he's praying and dedicating the temple. Saying that God is, you know, he's mysterious yet clear. He's a promise keeping God. He's transcendent yet imminent. He's just his conscience. He's a grace extending God. And here, number six, God is a missionary God. Look at verse 41. Verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes in your outstretched arm, comma, when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. As do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. And so again, God is a missionary God. And this is not something I think we wrongly think this way sometimes. This is not something that starts in the New Testament. It's been this way always. I mean, Genesis 12, where God's redemptive plan really starts rolling out with his covenant that he makes with Abraham. God says, I'm doing this, verse 3, so that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the temple, likewise, was not just for the Jews. It was always intended to be a house of prayer for all the peoples. Now, in the New Testament, the Jews got a little sideways with this and We read about the temple being used for nationalistic pride, for warfare even, for economic gain. And so Jesus flips the tables. He is angry. But it was never intended for that purpose. The temple of Solomon was to be an international house of prayer because God has always been a missionary God with a heart and a mind for the nations. And so that's why the Old Testament is filled with with stories of non-Jews drawn to God, from Ruth to the queen of Sheba, whether she became a believer or not, she was drawn to God. The widow of Zarephath, Naaman or Naaman, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And then in the New Testament, you've got the centurion, you've got Cornelius, and then the gospel goes to the nations, and we've got a gazillion names, all the way down to you and me today. This is God's desire and this is God's design from the beginning of time that the gospel would go to all the world. And so I want you to look right at me and understand it is a lie when someone says that Christianity is a Western religion. It is a global religion, global movement of Christ, global in scope Always then began and then it, it has always been God's desire. And so the way it's working today, just give you a couple of statistics. This morning. There were more Christian believers attending church in China than in all of Christian Europe. This morning, there were more Anglicans attending church in each of Kenya, South Africa Tanzania and Uganda 
Then did Anglicans in Britain, Canada, and Episcopalians in the U.S. combined in each of those countries. Earlier today, more Presbyterians were at church in Ghana than in Scotland. The gospel's for all the nations. And it is moving throughout the nations. The Christian center of the world has moved south. South Africa and Africa and Asia are blowing up with the gospel. God is on the move. He is fulfilling what he promised. The gospel is for all the nations. And so just as the promise to Abraham was for all the nations, so here at the steps of the temple, we find a prayer for all the nations. And in the book of Revelation, we get the culmination of this passion for the nations. Someday, around the throne will be gathered people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and people group singing praise to Christ. And so my question for you then is this. Are you praying for the nations? Are you praying for the nations? Are you praying? Are you also participating in the advance of the gospel? Participating by prayer, participating by giving. Our church gives a ton. You also, as you give to the church, it goes out. You also praying, giving, or maybe going. And I'm not just talking short-term mission trips. I am talking that. But what about lifetime? God knocking on the heart of your life saying, Hey, I want you to give your life away there. Or maybe short-term, Dominican Republic, Central Asia. We have teams going to both of those places this year. Are you praying for the nations? Are you praying for your neighbors? Like personally, Lord, give him, save Bob, save Sue, work in me to give me an opportunity to share with them and work, God, save them. And let me be bold in that. Are you praying for that? And so, friends, this is who God is, all these things. And so let us be bo- both confronted by that. Let's also be comforted by that. By the reality of who he is. Because A.W. Tozer, again, just what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And so the most determining fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And so let's make sure that the God of our minds matches God as he has revealed himself to be. He is mysterious yet clear. He is promise keeping. He is transcendent yet intimate. He is justice conscious. He is grace extending. And he's a missionary God. Believe, understand, live as if he is those things because he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that through 
these words and through the reading of your Bible, you would both convict and confront. As we think about who you are and how we try to cage you in, how we try to remake you into our image instead of being transformed to be like you. Father, forgive us when we conform to the pattern of this world. Father, help us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Father, help us to love you. In word and deed. To think rightly about you. And then live properly before you. For the praise of your glorious grace. Who alone are deserving of all power and glory. In Jesus name. Amen.